Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this episode, I had the opportunity to talk with Jake Lindsay a little more about the Friends or the Quakers. Building on the previous episode, this discussion helped me to get a much better grasp not only of the Quaker beliefs, but also how those beliefs help to challenge some of the blind spots that I've grown accustomed to as a Protestant of Puritan descent. I think the biggest aha moment I had in this discussion was towards the end when we talked about what Quakers do if they need to make an immediate decision. Jake's answer there was a revelation to me, and it's going to be one which I know we'll come back to in our season on government slated to come out at the beginning of 2022. In fact, I'm doing an interview next week on the very topic that Jake brings up in the section on decision-making. So anyway, I'll shut up now so you can learn some more about Quakers and their influence. Because we're, we're in a season uh, on nonviolent action right now, and which is what kind of got me interested in Quakers. They, they come up all, all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, in history, like you said, they're, they're at, at the right moments. So I want to kind of tie some of, of the information that you said more into a, you know, bigger ideas and, and real world applications and see if you sure. can kind of unwrap like what's, what's at play um, in these things. So first, like I said, you know, abolition, Japanese internment camps, civil rights, um, helping, helping the Jews in France when, when uh, we're talking about Nazi Germany on the rise. Um, it's like Quakers, Quakers are everywhere. Like what, like what gives Quakers the prophetic vision or the, the ability to see what most other Christians aren't, aren't seeing at that time. Um, and, and, and I understand, I've come to understand that it's not Quakers as a whole, right? Benjamin Lay was an outlier, but yeah. they're able to produce those big names. And like you said, they, they do come around more quickly as well. So like what, what tools do you have that give, gives your community that prophetic vision? So I think, I think, I think it's, I mean, it's a really good question. Like the questions you sent me had, I had to think a lot about, uh, about them because they're, it it is an interesting thing to think of. And I think what a lot of it comes down to is the, um, the way meeting is structured and the, um, I think it's the way that meeting is structured and the way that individual action is kind of emphasized. Uh, so there, there's something, uh, well, con- conservatives call it harmony. I think it's consensus is sort of the more uh, modern way of describing it. And I think other meetings describe it more as uh, consensus, but it's uh, that decision-making is very, very slow in meeting. And so using the kind of collective power of the meeting to do something is sometimes very slow and very difficult. Uh, but if you feel that Christ is... Um, pushing something very important on you uh, that is giving you sort of a, 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 you know, a fire in your gut or whatever to move forward independently. Uh, and I think that's kind of that structure, I think really encourages people to move forward. And then other people, they can also, you know, gather people in the meeting that also feel that way um, and, and kind of move forward. And I think that's one reason why things like this actually get going. Whereas in, the traditional sort of hierarchical structure of a Christian church, um, there's, there's a tendency for things to get pushed up and then tabled. Uh, 
And so, whereas I think that there's probably tons of, you know, Baptists and Catholics and all that sort of stuff that were opposed to slavery at the same time as many Quakers, I think that Quakers, because of the way that the meeting is structured, took individual action more quickly. And then that individual action impressed upon the hearts of other people. And when you're sitting quietly for a long time and somebody's telling you, you know, you, you, you're supposed to see Christ in all other human beings and you're beating your slave like that, that kind of, I think will tend to work on your conscience um, when you're quietly thinking about it for several hours a week. Uh, and I think that might be one reason why this sort of stuff moves uh, forward in, in Quakerism a little bit faster. I, I, and as far as it being like giving them prophetic vision, I think it's also because you're sitting quietly listening for Christ. That's that's the whole point of our worship is that you're you're trying to hear God. You know the the uh you know the the still small voice is what it is is that is that you know Christ is not necessarily in all of these big rambunctious things. It's that sitting quietly and expect and expecting that he is going to talk to you um kind of opens you up to hearing these things. It, it, that, that's kind of that's sort of how I uh I interpreted. I took a little, a couple of notes on that question, actually. So, um, one thing I wanted to point out, I, I, I don't feel, I always feel bad about this, is that uh, kind of to reemphasize that it wasn't, it wasn't all friends. Um, so there's, um, do you know the journal of, uh, I think it's John Woolman. I know um, John Woolman. I don't know the journal. Okay, so he wrote a journal, and it's just basically things that he was doing during his life, uh, and. He was an abolitionist, abolitionist in the 1750s, I think 1760s, some, somewhere around then. And, you know, a lot of walking around in, in the colonies and stuff like that and um, joining other meetings and stuff. And he just goes through a lot of this is that a lot of Quakers owned slaves. Um, and but some of them were not didn't sit, it didn't sit easy with them. Um, but he was very much against it. And, uh, he would prepare people's wills and things like that. And he would convince them during the preparation of their will to get, to free their slaves. So things like that. So he had an impression from God telling him, let help this community stop doing this. It's a bad, it's a poor reflection of Christ's action in the world. Um, he also has some really interesting things that are also way ahead of its time, I think, which is, um, like tax resistance, uh, because there was a war going on at the time, the French Indian war, I think uh, is what he's referring to. Uh, I may have the dates wrong or something, but um, uh, they, this is something they talked about where they're like, well, you know, we're paying taxes and these taxes are going to fund this war. Um, and this doesn't sit easy with us that like we're funding people killing each other. Uh, like, what do we do about that? And, and one of the solutions was to um, live very modestly and reduce the amount of uh, luxuries and stuff like that, that you had, because then you would have, you would be, um, if you're generating less income or if you're gen if you're buying less luxuries and, and that's what the taxes are on, then, uh, you are not funding it as much. So I think it's, it's to, a very long way of uh, answering this. Is I think that individuals do have prophetic, uh, foresight. And I think this is true amongst all believers. Um, but I think that the, the way that, the Quaker community is structured gives early action, I think, uh, because it takes individuals to act. And also because we have sort of a narrative, the uh, theology. And so we're reading a lot about what other people are doing that also kind of impacts our, uh, our view of, of what's going on, I guess. So, um, 
you read about other Quakers doing, you know, freeing slaves, for example, then you're going to start going like, why are they doing this? Oh, yeah, maybe maybe this is not the right thing for me to do. Or you read about other Quakers doing tax resistance uh, or protesting Vietnam or uh, going and helping, you know, starving mothers in Germany after the war uh, or you know, protesting the blockade in World War One, like that sort of thing. When you read about these things, that sort of makes you think a little bit more about uh, your journey, I think, with Christ is is that uh, it's something to contemplate, especially when you're sitting quietly for a long time. That's something that could be like, so we have these things also called queries, um, where they're basically questions that you can ask yourself uh, during silence to sort of... Uh, Maybe if you need some sort of guidance, sometimes it's hard to just be there quietly. Your mind wanders and stuff like that. So you have different things to think about. And um, I think these are types of things that become the queries is like, what are we doing to, uh, you know, stop World War II or whatever, you know, or the violence that's associated with that or like these mass killings and things like that. So I think that's kind of what it is, is it's the structure. I think it's just gives rise to early action. Yeah. And I'm so wow, there a number of things. I mean, you, everything you said was good. And I think, I think biographies and, and seeing how other people are doing things and then applying that is good. But another one that stood out was in just when he said, what can we do about these mass killings? I'm thinking you actually have the presumption that you can do something in the world. Like for, for my group by and large, it'd be like, ah, oh, man, what can I do about these mass killings there? I mean, there's, there's nothing I can do until three more years when I can vote for the president again, yeah, right. <laughs> because we, we invest everything into politics and everything is structural and hierarchical and, and it's out of my control. Like we don't view for as individualistic as we are. I, we don't think that individuals really do anything. Um, and I, and yeah. I think that that that's impressive. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, I think this is, at least for me is, I mean, this is, you have, you're acting in the world with the light of Christ. So this is the creative force of the universe or whatever is expressed through the individual. So uh, you do have the ability to change things, even if it's a, a small amount, you can still impact the homeless guy on the street or something like that. Like there's, there are things that you can do. Um, you know, one of the things that I work in a lot, which is not really Quaker associated, is is uh, the libertarian anarchist community, I guess. Um, and it is it's it is community building. This is a this is something that I think our world is missing is is community. And so it's a sickness in our society is that people don't have people that they can rely on. And so this is where I think I can make an impact, and where it may be a small impact is one of these people that kind of comes in and can help form a community with me, maybe one of them can impact stopping these mass killings. Uh, as far as like voting every couple of years or whatever, not all Quakers agree with this, but uh, democracy is going to leave people unhappy. It's, that doesn't work. That's why we use we use the harmony in, in meeting is that we don't vote on stuff. We just, we come to, we come to an agreement that everybody can uh, move forward with inspired by Christ. Because if you just vote on everything, there's always going to be the minority vote that is not happy with the situation. A compromise in democracy is some people don't get what don't get anything, and some people get what they want. Like that's 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 how that's how a compromise works. So that sort of uh, I think that's maybe another thing is that um, 
even if you can't get collective action on something, you could still take individual action and individual action does impact stuff. I mean, there's, uh, albeit could be small, but, but if you're trying to save one life, you have one life and you can maybe save one to one it's mass killings is, is a hard way to think about it because you're thinking you're in this mass group of people and you're trying to stop this mass group of people, but maybe you can save one. Um, and, and that's, that's all that all, I mean, it, that's if crisis is calling you to do that, then do that. So, uh, I think that's maybe, I guess a different way of thinking about it is the vote, the voting thing. I, I mean, I, I don't think voting matters, <laughs> matters at all. I mean, like it, to me, it's, it's, I also, this is more of a personal opinion and, you know, and Quakers actually did take, they had a lot of political power in the late 1700s, especially in like Pennsylvania and Maryland and places like that. North Carolina. Um, and this is another one where they sort of collectively made an early decision to not hold political power, uh, because it's the, it's ultimately backed up by violence. And I think a lot of modern Quakers don't believe in that. Um, uh, and I think that a lot of past Quakers didn't, but they did sort of in mass resign, uh, from political seats in the, in the colonies right prior to, the United States becoming the United States. Uh, and it was a, a kind of a collective realization that um, ultimately all action by the government is backed up by the sword. And uh, that if you are wielding that power, you're violent. And if you're voting for somebody to wield that power, you're putting them in the position to live a life of sin and wield that power and hurt others and that sort of stuff. So there's a, there's a, um, I don't know. I don't know how I got off on this other tangent, but it's just, it's just sort of a weird, like this is more of a, my personal thing. I don't think there's a huge amount of uh, Quakers that necessarily believe in this, but there are a lot of tax resistors uh, because of, because, you know, funding the police or funding jails or funding wars is antithetical to uh, the testimonies. Um, there are, there are plenty of anarchists. Uh, usually they're left anarchists that are in, in Quakers. And I would probably call myself a right anarchist, but uh, you know, the end result, um, I mean, getting rid of a violent state is kind of the goal. Uh, I, I, we just have kind of different views on what that would mean. Um, but, uh, there are, there are these forces active in the Quaker community, but they're, I would say my norm, I think probably most conservative Quakers would actually probably be Democrats and be pushing for those sort of democratic policies that, uh, contain that perspective of social justice and things like that. Um, all the, that is, you know, again, the kind of a point of contention with, with some people is that the, the political side does tend to be very left-leaning as far as uh, the American political structure left. That's why liberal, liberal and conservative in the Quaker sense don't mean liberal and conservative in the political American political sense. It's, it's, um, it's more about uh, Christianity. I think it's, it's more like conservative and traditional. Conservative would be more traditional Quakers and liberals would be a little bit more modern in their, uh, I guess, theology is like non-Christ centered is the only way I can think about it. And then again, evangelicals are more Christ centered, but they are more like other Protestants where they have programmed structure. But I don't know how I got off on this, uh, (laughs) on this whole tangent, but uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm saying is that, yeah, it's, it's, there is a, there's definitely a, reinforce belief that you can take action and you can make a difference. Um, whether the size is not relevant, it's, it's that yes, Christ is compelling you to do this. You do this. And we, there, 
Um, I can't remember her name, but there was a, a friend, uh, a woman who got kicked out of the Massachusetts colony. And, um, but she felt that Christ was still calling her back. And they told her, if you come back, we'll kill you. Um, and uh, she felt like she was supposed to come back and she did. And they did end up killing her. So like, but, and that's very tragic and stuff like that, but it made an impact on the, the uh, theological narrative, I guess, of uh, she, I mean, this is the same as to me as being a martyr back in just right after Christ uh, was resurrected is it's sort of the same thing is that you are here to um, tell a group of people that uh, they need to change their ways. And uh, so she died, but she made a huge impact because we still read about her today. We still, um, we still have an, a better understanding of, you know, the truth of Christ in this world based on those actions in the past. So even if you don't feel like you're making an impact, you can make an impact. It's just may not be immediately apparent. Yeah. One of the other things that, that you talked about, I mean, you talked about it a, a bunch here is the, the silence and it, mm-hmm. um, it sort of, it struck me. I remember when I was, I was, uh, talking, um, for, for the last episode, uh, and it was said that, you know, well, part of the silence is we reflect on what other people have said, but also we are inviting God to speak to us. Mm-hmm. And this, this shows you just how messed up I am and that I was like, oh yeah, I guess you would want to hear from God. But the way that a, a lot of evangelicalism is, and I, I understand that we talk about prayer, mm-hmm. but a lot of times when I think of a decision, I'm making a decision like in a meeting, I'm not... I'm not thinking of inviting God, like to really, really listen to God. I might mm-hmm. pray about it and kind of have the sentiment that, yeah, I care what God thinks. But a lot of times I think it's more of, well, I, I know what God thinks. He thinks like me. And yeah. b- because I want, I want this thing and I would only want it if it's what God wanted. So this is, this must be what God wants. But sure. taking that time to pause and really, really reflect and let God speak. I was like, oh, that that really does make a lot of sense, and I think in evangelicalism, some some of our things, and it's probably different in the charismatic community, but mm-hmm. we're we're kind of averse. Like we believe in the Holy Spirit, but we really don't like him very much. Um, we don't. <laughs> it, it's it's uncomfortable because I'm learning, reading a lot on this recently, but I'm learning that I I think a lot of modern day evangelicalism is is really just rationalistic empiricist types of things, a response to the, you know, 19th, late 19th century. And we don't think we're like them, but we really, really are. Like we're very rationalistic. And I think this is just one, one example of where that, that does us a disservice in being able to make decisions as a community and try to listen to God and assume that God might not have the same desires and conclusions that we do. Yeah. Uh, and I I think that's, uh, I mean, it's not easy either. I mean, it's, it takes a long time to make decisions in harmony, um, with the rest of the meeting. It's not easy. Um, kind of the way that it works in conservative business meeting is, uh, you have the people that participate in business meeting, which is anybody who's convinced and is part of that meeting. Um, and you'll have some sort of decision to make and, uh, there's usually somebody who it rotates who it is, but there's somebody usually who's kind of in charge of the meeting. And, um, uh, 
they'll they'll basically people will make their statements or whatever and then they'll call for silence and then we'll try to we'll try to kind of discuss it some more and see what's going on and but there's a lot of one of the things that I think is really nice about doing it this way is that um not everybody has all of the knowledge so everybody else may have different bits of knowledge and stuff like that. So you could have something very simple, like installing an air conditioner. This is something that happened at my meeting, installing an air conditioning at the meeting. So we lived in Virginia. It's very hot. Uh, and there's no air conditioning in our meeting house. We had just had fans, but the fans work pretty well. But um, uh, some people wanted uh, an air conditioning installed and that would have used meeting money. Um, and then that money so th- th- you can only use money for one thing at a time, right? So, uh, so you could buy an air conditioning, or uh, you could complete the landscaping, or you could help the poor at the beach. And um, you know, and there was a lot of homeless people at the beach, and and that was one thing that we did outreach for. It. So there's a lot of different things you can do. And then there's and then it further complicates is that well, where does the air conditioning come from? Was child labor used to uh, build this air conditioning? Was it voluntary child labor, or was it slave labor, or um, you know, uh, where the rare earth metals in the air conditioning, did they come from child mines in Africa where these kids are basically slaves? Uh, so there's a lot of more complicated things to think about when talking about just buying an air conditioning or what color to paint the meeting or what carpet to use. Like there's, there are other things that are involved in that. And so that's why these things sort of take a long time because what is what's important to you uh you may be able to get that thing that is important to you but there are other implications involved that uh you may not think about and so taking time to go in silence and have Christ and Christ does act differently in different people so have Christ touch the hearts of different people who are involved in the meeting to bring up points that you may not have thought about um or to bring up you know a point that like maybe you shouldn't be getting an air conditioning. Maybe, maybe it's fine the way it is. I mean, the meeting has been there since the 1800s and nobody ever had an air conditioning fans. Fans were relatively new. So, um, you may, you just don't necessarily need that. And there may be a higher priority for the meeting's money. Additionally, there may be somebody in the meeting who is, is perfectly uh, willing to volunteer to just buy an air conditioning and install it. So, uh, and they take individual action on that and install it. And then you've got air conditioning because that's what they wanted in the meeting and it makes the meeting more comfortable for them. Um, and it makes it more welcoming to people who are maybe not believers, uh, because it's cool and, you know, gets up in the nineties and it's humid and it's, it's, uh, it's Virginia. So, um, so there's, there's a lot of things that kind of go into that. And so, so trying to achieve harmony, not just harmony with the meeting, but harmony with Christ to make a decision. It is, it takes work. It's not, it's not easy. It's like being married. Married is not always the easiest thing in the world. It's, it is an effort on a daily basis to make sure that you are moving together as a couple, uh, to, you know, some sort of single vision or something. But, um, and it's sort of the same thing with a meeting is that, uh, you know, Christ used these analogies in the Bible all the time about, uh, the groom and the brides and stuff like that is that that's what the church is, is it's, it's a, it's a marriage and marriage is work. And, we're preparing the world for Christ to come into the world. So it's, uh, it, it is, it's an effort and, but it's, but I think it's a, a noble effort. And I think that it's, uh, it does. And I think this is what kind of leads back to that. Why do, why are Quakers 
sort of ahead of their time. Although it does seem like it takes a long time for action, those actions, those collective actions do tend to be, um, uh, I think, a, a better reflection of Christ's action in the world. Sometimes they're not. I mean, the, you know, there there have been plenty of, of Quakers that probably did not do the right things um, and plenty of meetings who made wrong decisions and stuff like that. But because, you know, people's egos, there are they're just people. Um, but I think that's sort of what it sort of condenses it and lends itself to. And that's why you see a lot of this very, very small, peculiar group of people making very large impacts in the world. Well, I guess once, if it takes a while for Quakers to make a decision, but once they do make a decision because they, it has the full force of the community behind it, yeah, they do it with conviction and, uh, you know, a certainty of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and like your gut, your, uh, example that you did, I think two episodes ago, Benjamin Lay, he was not popular. Um, like it took, it took a long time after his death, even before really the entire community joined him. And there was, there was declarations, uh, the Quakers and the Mennonites got along really well, uh, early on in America, in the American colonies. Um, there were declarations with the Mennonites and the Quakers to abolish slavery. Uh, the famous one was in Germantown. I think it was in the late 1600s even where they were saying we're not doing slavery anymore. So there were people actively working on it, but it took almost a hundred years before the more holistic sort of total group said, we're not doing this anymore. We're freeing our slaves and we're moving forward to be abolitionists as a group. So it does, it does take a long time, but when they, it was still, although it was a hundred years after they were still, they were kind of pushing this, but I mean like George Fox, uh, who's kind of the founder, um, he was against slavery. So even, I mean, from the 1650s until the late 1700s, there were people actively changing the community and getting them to kind of coalesce around this abolitionist sentiment. Um, and they did achieve it a hundred years prior to the civil war, but, uh, it still took a long time. So that's kind of like, I, I, it's like, I don't like to poo poo them being, I guess, advanced as far as morality, but it, but it's not, it's not like it's like a magic like switch or anything like that. It takes a long time for people's hearts and minds to be changed. Uh, but it's done in harmony. And like you said, once that's done in harmony and people are convinced they can move forward as, as a force together. Um, and yeah, in the meantime, I, people take individual action. And, and I mean, they, they do it right too, or at least it's, you can poo poo this yeah. too, but, uh, <laughs> It, it like I, I look at my community right now and we're, we're facing so much um, pushback trying to do like racial reconciliation stuff or talk mm -hmm. about race. Like they just, they don't want to hear it. We're, we're done with that. And I yeah. think about the Quakers. It's like, well, when we did, when they did realize that there was a major problem, they did say, you know what? Slaves are human. They're image bearers of God. Um, not only did they release their slaves, but they advocated compensating them and like restore it, like restoration, repentance. And yeah. I think about my group, um, my, my, my denomination that I'm in right now, like they really only put out a, an apology at the like higher level mm -hmm. uh, about turning away uh, blacks in the sixties. They only released that like a couple years ago, yeah. ten, a decade ago, maybe. And so, and we're still so, so averse to it. We don't want to look at, at our sin or the consequences of that. Whereas it seems like, yeah, when the Quakers make a decision, they're like, they're all in. It might take them a hundred years to do it, but, yeah. and they're, they're behind it. 
Yeah, I mean, it does. I think it's because it's, like I said, it's, it is something that you, you are given a lot of time to contemplate and it's, and you're given a lot of time to open your heart to Christ. Um, so I, one of the things that when I, when I early, when I became a, uh, an early convinced friend that I used to always really promote about it, I, I really think people receive too many messages. Uh, like your phone is always buzzing. I, just here in this conversation, I'm getting messages from work. Like I'm, I receive, I've received messages all day long. The radio's on, I podcast, the television. Then, then when I was in, in the evangelical community, then on Sunday, I go to church, I receive a message from the priest or the preacher. Um, so it's just like, you're always receiving these messages. Your, your mind is, is I think cluttered by a lot of, uh, these external sources of information, which are good. I mean, you, you, you should be receiving that as well, but, um, it, it, and then when you're praying, a lot of times you're asking for things, uh, you're not receptive to receiving information. So, so your entire life, you're receiving all this external stuff. And then in the, in the rare moments where you're quiet and praying, you're asking for stuff. So you're giving the message. So, so there's, there's very little time for you to just, uh, quietly listen for God. And I, and I think aside from the religious point, I think that it's just really good for people to be quiet for a little while, you know, in, for thousands and thousands of years, people were often sitting there quietly with nothing going on around them, watching their sheep or chopping trees or whatever the heck they're doing. Uh, and now we just have so much of this stuff going on that taking a break and intentionally waiting for Christ to minister to you I, or content, or even if you're not open for that at that moment, thinking about the things that are going on in the world or in your life or whatever quietly for a little while without somebody else telling you what to think about it. So, um, so this is probably going to be a really stupid question, but how... So I know you, you talk about community helping you discern the voice of Christ, but it, mm -hmm. it seems so, to an evangelical Westerner, it seems so subjective and just, so I just, I'm just quiet and like, don't think of anything. And like, how do I know that the voice that comes to me isn't my voice? How do I know that it's, yeah. it's the voice of God? Um, I like, how do, how do you do it and how do you discern yeah. it? Um, well, so, so it's, it's a little bit, it is a little bit kind of like mystical, I guess. And it is, it, it does feel different. So, um, you know, I'm sure, you know, people who are really into meditation and stuff like that. And I think it's similar to that is that, um, you may not be ready or open to hearing Christ, but you could be, um, I guess, influenced in just sort of like dissecting the things that happened in your life. Uh, so like conscience, I think, is um, an expression of the spirit. So uh, if you are sitting in a meeting and, and maybe all week long, you haven't you haven't thought about this at all, but you were you were mean to somebody. You, you said something mean to them or whatever. And then that kind of like pops into your head like, oh, yeah, you know, I was really rude to this cashier or something like that. Uh, I think that that like that conscience or feeling bad about it or, or just it coming up in your head is sort of um, is the types of things that would be like very simple things to, uh, to hear about. But, um, also though, um, you're all sitting in, in community together. And so somebody may be inspired, uh, by the spirit or they will feel like they're inspired, inspired by the spirit to bring something up. 
Um, and so, and sometimes it's kind of weird. Like sometimes they'll, like, I remember this one time and I don't know what it, the message was, but maybe it was for somebody else. This guy stood up in a meeting and he was like, uh, he was like, we were walking, uh, my wife and I were walking and, uh, we passed by these bushes and they usually bloom in April, but it's February and they were blooming. And I just thought it's not time for them to bloom. And that was all he said. So, and it was weird. And like, I was like, I don't, I don't know what that means, but maybe that meant something to somebody there. Maybe it meant something to him. So it's, it's those types of things is that we are open to receiving God. And then if you feel especially convicted, then uh, that is something you would either bring up or that you would discuss with other people in the meeting afterward. Cause we do usually fellowship afterward. Um, and so, and that's sort of how you use, uh, I guess the community, but it, it is a little bit hard to describe like the, the, the easiest way, the most relatable way I can think of describing it is conscience is that, is that you will have something that doesn't seem internal to you that impacts your conscience. And I would say that's the closest thing as I can think of to describe the spirit is that, um, things are going to be happening in your life and you may not, you may push them aside and not think about them. And then you have this, you know, couple of hour period <clears throat> to, uh, sort of clear your mind and think, and then the things that come up and the things that you feel impacted by are going to be the things that are Christ speaking to you. Um, but it's also, sometimes you go for an entire meeting, it's very difficult to clear your mind. Maybe you get like a couple of seconds or something and, uh, and there's minor clarity. Cause I mean, like a lot of times I'll sit there and I'll be thinking about programming or I'll be thinking about, um, you know, what, what I'm going to prepare for the podcast or, uh, a TV show or, you know, whatever, like things, other things pop in your mind, but it, it's a practice. It's something that, and people who meditate will kind of have this, a very similar, um, a similar thing where it's like, it, it takes time. It's something that you, you need to be ready for that, and that you're practicing to be receptive to this. So I, I don't know if that answers your question at all. <laughs> yeah, it, it yeah, is a little I mean, bit so mystical. Yeah. Yeah, and and um, you know, I so I, I don't think that the mystical is a is a bad thing. It's something that is harder for me and my group to mm-hmm. understand, and and I think value as legitimate when I think sure. mo- most of the time groups tend to go to extremes. And so right. I think, I think our group definitely needs more mystical and maybe, I don't know, maybe your group needs more uh, yeah. empirical <laughs> or, or I don't know, but I know that my group needs more mystical. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, the nature of God is supernatural. So it's like, you know, there is, so, and, and these are different impressions and stuff that I get in my community. Like I do come from, I think that more kind of legalistic tradition and stuff. And there was a lot of stuff like that, that this was just so hippie to me, like, like way too, like when I first got into it, it was kind of a turnoff, but there was something about it. Yeah. Um, and you said you're a programmer. Yeah. I'm a software engineer. Uh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I, I would not have associated that. I, I yeah. was thinking like hippie type stuff too. Oh yeah. No, no, I'm a software engineer. But like when I first went there, like it was also like, it was, it was sort of an opportune time because like things were not going great for me. Well, I would say objectively things were going pretty well for me in my life, but like spiritually and emotionally they were not. And, um, you know, my, my, my dad's actually in the military, so, uh, he got stationed somewhere else. And, uh, and so I have four sisters, they all moved to this other place. And I was still in Virginia alone, 
for the first time in a long time, being from a big family. Um, and like just a lot of things like that were going on where I was just like, it was kind of a confusing time. I was also, you know, reading Tolstoy. Um, I was also starting to get into the anarchist stuff and, um, the, like, I felt very impacted by, uh, the way that our church was promoting war to me, at least is, you know, you go in, there's the pulpit and you have a big old American flag, the Christian flag on the same level. And then below those, the cross. And like, there was just, to me, there was just this kind of like symbolism of like the state and like, and then the amount of like, God bless you know, George Bush and like, like all of these types of things where I was just like, this is, I don't, I like, it's not, there's something wrong about this. Like they were the, the Iraq war by that time had been going on forever. Uh, I was starting to also, you know, I, I was into both of those things as a, as a, a young person going like, oh yeah, this is great. This is what, you know, America's supposed to do. And also associated that with the religion. So like, this is, you know, us bringing, democracy to the world and that that's going to like promote them from being heathens and like coming over to Christ and all that sort of stuff. But like those things were starting to kind of change in my mind. And, uh, and then that, so I, I went to the Quaker meeting and it was full of hippies, like just a bunch of weirdos, a bunch of Buddhists and, uh, atheists and like all sorts of people that I would not associate with it. And so like, I was, I didn't feel good about it. Um, but going in and sitting quietly for a while and being able to think about something, there was something to that. And then over time, uh, I was less uncomfortable with like the weird hippie stuff. I understood then why there were Buddhists there. I understood why atheists were there. Um, and I felt a lot less adversarial to, uh, I felt much less like these different people that didn't believe what I believed were my enemies and that they were more people that, um, we're just at a different stage of spiritual development and they may be more advanced in spiritual development in some areas and less in other areas. Uh, but that was the point of the meeting was to make a space for everybody to come to Christ. And so like, that was sort of like an interesting transformation. And, and I think the, the, the main thing that was, that transformed was being able to be quiet and not be, not have all of these external messages and stuff like that going for, and, and it's just good for you. I think in general is, is to sit quietly and not have your phone buzzing or people messaging you on teams or whatever. Um, so I, I just think it, there is a, a need for that in the world. And it's sometimes hard to sitting quietly and sitting still is hard. It, 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 especially nowadays, I think, but I think some, I think people need it. Yeah. Um, quick question for you. How much, how much time do you have? Cause I want to make sure that I get to some of these questions and I don't want to, oh. that, uh, I, I got, I got, I got plenty of time. I got work to do, but I, I can do it later. Okay. Uh, so perfect. perfect. <laughs> so yeah, then I won't worry about it. Um, okay. okay what, one of the questions that I want to get to next, cause, um, some of the things that you're talking about, like just sitting in silence and you, you don't do music in no or, or um, preaching or, no, or evangelism. Uh, well, no. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, I wouldn't say there's no, there, there is no preaching, but we believe that all believers are ministers. And so if you're uh, compelled by Christ to speak, you, you can. Okay. So I want to tie this to one of the things that um, probably the, the major tipping point for me to come to nonviolence was looking at the early church. 
I'm like, mm-hmm. oh man, they look very, very different than we do. And the, the early church, just like the Quakers, it's not like, uh, you know, everything the early church did was perfect and wonderful. And it's this panacea for all of my Christian woes. Sure. But, but when you see something, when you see them univocal on certain issues or practices, it should make you think twice, I think. <laughs> so could you help me understand what is, what is the Quaker relation to the early church? Because in my mind, it seems like some of the Quaker practices are, and ideas are way better than my groups. Like their adherence to nonviolence, their orthopraxy, not just trying to, to caring about what they do, not just what they think. Uh, I think they get that right better than, than my group tends to do. But some of these practical aspects uh, of, you know, not preaching, well, it seems like Paul and others, like it seems like there was preaching or it seems like there were prophecies in the church people speaking. It seems like there were, there were songs and hymns. Um, and so could you kind of talk about where you think Quakerism lines up with the early church, where it diverges, where you think, yeah. Uh, well, so I think that early on, so, so I I mean, Quakerism is a product of the time that it came out of. Um, and so, uh, there was these people called seekers in England. This is during the English civil war when Cromwell took over. Um, and they were all trying to like figure out, uh, like what God wanted. And, uh, you, you got a lot of different denominations that came out of this. And, um, so I think a lot of the stuff that is traditional with Quakers is sort of a, um, a product of that time, but they were trying to, trying to go back to their understanding of what the early church was. Um, so this much more flat communal sort of, uh, structure so just we don't have we don't have priests or preachers but it's not because well that's not the right way to say it we do have them but everybody is that so so people do feel but but i guess this is the other aspect of that is that it's like a solemn responsibility to get up and speak in meetings so you should be sure that the message that you're bringing is christ inspiring you to speak. Um, so people do stand up and sometimes people stand up and sing like, you know, that happens once in a while too. Um, they just feel like they, they feel like this song is pouring out of them and that they need to stand up and sing. And then they do. And then they sit down and the meeting continues, um, until people shake hands. And then, and at some point somebody will feel like the meeting is done, um, and shake hands and then that spreads and then people leave, but you're also welcome to just continue to sit there. But, um, so the music aspect of that is actually, it's kind of interesting because there was a, a sort of a little fight about that at some point. I don't, I don't remember exactly the deal with it. So the way that like our meeting in Virginia dealt with it is that if you really wanted to, like, I, I really like Christmas music a lot. Um, I, 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 you know, I grew up in the church. I like singing the Christmas hymns. I like listening to those, um, if you felt like that was something that you wanted and that was missing, we didn't do it at our meeting. But uh, there was a nearby, there was, I think it was an Episcopal church and, and they did those. And so we would just as a group go there and, and fellowship with other Christians that have a different practice and we would participate in their hymns because we liked them. Uh, and some that didn't work for them. So they didn't, they just didn't participate. Um, and that was fine. Uh, so as far as like, I think, I think it's to some degree a little bit difficult to know exactly what the early church was doing, but uh, 
I think a lot of this is is designed to try to mimic this sort of small community um, harmony in the community and uh, individual action. So we we do have preachers. I mean, George Fox, the founder, was he preached? I mean, like he went around and told people, "This is what I believe." You know, we should be we should be listening for Christ. Uh, John Woolman walked around, and a lot of it is is a lot of it's more instead of like somebody up high preaching down, it's more conversational. Um, so I think that's kind of a little bit of the difference. And um, we also do still do epistles, so uh, writing to other meetings. So like my meeting uh, in Virginia Beach was uh, Virginia Beach Friends meeting. It was part of North Carolina yearly meeting. So this is a, also a little bit different for conservatives. Is conservatives don't have like a convention. Uh, so like friends general meeting, uh, is, I think, I think it's liberal. And then there's like the evangelical friends conference. And, and I think there's a couple of those as well. Uh, so conservatives are organized slightly differently. They have the, the weekly meetings and then the monthly meetings, and then the monthly meetings are part of the, uh, yearly meetings. And there's three main yearly meetings in the United States. I think it's, um, Iowa, Ohio, I think Ohio is the biggest, and then North Carolina, which is the one that uh, I was part of. And so they're not really they're not really a hierarchical structure exactly, but those are the yearly meetings. They get together, they try to uh, write out the queries and epistles to the other meetings and and things for other Christians to think about uh, or other friends to think about and things like that. So there is sort of that aspect that is sort of preaching, but a lot of it's done in conversation and a lot of it's done more in writing, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And okay. the music thing, that's sort of like a I think that's I think the music thing is more of a product of the Protestant Reformation because a lot of the Protestants at that time were not allowing any music at all. Um and they were stripping down a lot of the stuff that the Catholic Church, the ornate stuff that the Catholic Church did and doing very plain style everything. Um and I think a lot of that is carried over into like modern Protestantism. Uh and and the music aspect um just kind of stuck with conservative friends it's there there's just no music it's just part of it yeah i know certain uh very conservative aspects uh, groups in our our denomination like they'll only sing the psalms or right or something um so they don't do no singing but they yeah yeah they're very limited yeah, yeah. i mean it was in our in the meeting in virginia and we actually the meeting here that i go to once in a while in fort worth it's uh it's in a church so there are instruments and stuff like that um it's a i don't know what the denomination of the church is uh but uh, there are instruments. And at our meeting, we had an organ, like a small, uh, a small electric organ. Um, I had never seen it played, so I'm not really sure why it was there, but uh, it was there. So I would imagine that somebody used it at some point. Um, and people, like I said, in meetings, some people will f- be filled with Christ and they, they'll feel like they need to sing. And so they do. Um, it's not common, but it does happen. Okay. Uh, another question about, about the meeting and that kind of the way that you, you do things, um, talked a bit about consensus making, uh, in the last Mm -hmm. episode. So I I don't think really need to kind of go into details unless there's anything you'd want to fill in. Mm -hmm. But one of the questions that I had was, so let's say I'm on, I'm on my church's diaconate and we're helping somebody who comes in with a, a need, uh, Mm -hmm. financial need, whatever keep the lights on, stay in their, their, uh, apartment, whatever. And the need is pretty immediate. Um, you know, one of the critiques that I think that you probably get about decision-making is, 
But what if you just have to make a decision? Um, and, and I think most of the time, decisions don't actually have to be made with immediacy when people yeah. think that they do. Um, right. I, in most of the mercy needs that I've that's occurred, part of the pe- part of the reason people come with this this story of immediacy is because they know that it puts you on edge and it makes you make your decision fast and and mm-hmm. you know it, it gives it makes their decision more weighty. But let's just assume there really is a decision that has sure. to be done immediately. How do you how do you work through that? Uh, well, I mean, the the meeting usually it just takes too long for the meeting to do it. So somebody will need to somebody or a group of somebody's will take immediate action. So, um, like one example of this was uh, when Obamacare got passed. Uh, this is something that was controversial, I guess, with with our members, um, and a lot of the members wanted to go help people sign up for this at different places. Um, and that, and that is sort of an immediate thing because there is a time limit to when you can enter the marketplace and all that sort of stuff and get insurance. And others said, no, we shouldn't participate this in this because this is force. Um, and that, that would be the side that I was kind of on. And, um, but, uh, so instead of trying to figure this out for months and months and then the deadline passes, um, a group of people got together and they said, okay, well, you know what? We're just going to take time out of our lives and volunteer and go do this. And so the same thing is if like somebody, you know, needed to keep the lights on or whatever, and there was some sort of immediate need for that, you would, you could take up a collection that was separate from the meetings money. You could, um, uh, if somebody had like a burst pipe or something, maybe we have a plumber or somebody who's a handyman in the, in the meeting and they can go help free of charge or something like that. So you can take individual action. It's just that the, that corporately it takes a long time for action to reach harmony. So, uh, it's just, it, it encourages, you know, one of the things I also, I bring this up a lot is that when I was a kid, um, this, this used to happen all the time in our, in our church is that my mom was very involved in the youth ministry, uh, for like little kids and, um, time and time again, she would not volunteer for something and everybody would just assume that she was going to do it. Uh, so the, and, and that was just, that was sort of the church consensus that they just, that the leadership of the church was just like, oh, well, Marta will do it. Um, and I think that that was uh, incorrect and it, it was not fair, I don't think, to my mom. And it wasn't really fair to our family either. She's got a bunch of kids of her own. But um, but she always felt like she needed to do that. Whereas I think in Quaker meeting, because sort of hierarchical action of the church, there's not really there's not really that structure to take action and harmony reaching takes a long time. And so it, it gives people more of a, of a, a free space to say yes or no on an individual level. So that like there is youth ministry that we didn't have very many kids at our meeting because you know, the average age of the meeting was like 70, but um, there were some kids. And so the people who were, who would make sure to do that, like they either, took action on their own to say, yes, I'm going to do this or no, I'm not going to do this. So there was a lot less assumptions that so-and-so member was going to do this or, or it was more of a, people felt much more comfortable saying yes or no, or saying, I'm going to do this. Does anybody want to help me? Um, because there's that kind of, there's that sort of like, you have no ability to defer this to some leadership structure. It's it's all it's all going to come down to basically you doing it or not doing it. Um, so I think that's kind of the. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> no, it, it, it's brilliant because um, 
And next week, actually, I'm, I'm talking with somebody about uh, the diffusion of responsibility. I'm going to use yeah. Tolstoy as well. And, you know, the yeah. diffusion of responsibility in the sense of you, there are a number of ways that that happens. One way is that, um, you know, you, you can um, diffuse it negatively, like where uh, the government says, well, we have the right to kill people, but the police officer arrests, the attorney, the prosecutor convicts, the judge condemns. Yeah. The jury. And so you kind of diffuse it that way. But then the other way is like voting. You know, well. Yeah. I voted. I kind of did my part. I gave the government my responsibility. Now I don't have any. And, yeah, yeah. And even though I'm, I recognize that. I until you you brought that up, I was like, oh yeah, I guess as a deacon, if our church can come to a conclusion, I could have done something, you know, for the sure. for the person on my own. But because I'm so invested in hierarchy and structure and um, that sort of thinking, it just it. It's a secondary thought. It wasn't even a secondary yeah. thought. Yeah. Well, and, and this this came up for me a lot at the beginning too. When I first became convinced, was it, it's kind of difficult to wrap your head around a very flat structure when um, you're just nothing else in your life is like that. Uh, there's like one like one of the very first things that uh, somebody said. That it was, it's sort of a like a. There's a lot of curmudgeons in in the meeting or whatever. And somebody said, um, like yelled across the room at. Somebody. I was talking to him about like uh, just Christianity and stuff and Jesus. And uh, he yelled across the room at this other lady, and he said, "Hey, Jesus loves you." And her response was, "Says who?" And which I just thought was kind of like interesting and funny, but also it's kind of like, oh, well, this is sort of a. This is to me, this was more like an invitation to discuss like it rather than like a, a curmudgeonly like brushing it off kind of thing is that like, there is sort of this, you you don't, you, you don't really have a, a pastor to go to, to ask if something's wrong or right. You have to discern that for yourself. You can corporately decide a lot of that stuff and, and talk to people in the meeting and they can help you arrive at a, a conclusion. And then also, since there's no there's no expectation that the deacons and the pastor are going to handle some situation. It's, it's just so much more up to you to make sure that things that you are convicted to uh, make sure happen, happen. Like you don't, you, it, it's up to you. You have to do it. So, uh, and then what's I think is good about that too, is that because everybody has this expectation and then it's much easier to form smaller groups to go and do something that you all feel that this is a good thing together. So it doesn't end up getting deferred to like one person. Like my mom's not running vacation Bible school every single year for 10 years. It's, it's now a group of people are getting together and going, Oh, well, this is something we can offer to the community. It's something that we care about. Um, and then also it, it also gives room for the person to say, I did handle this last year, but I just don't have time to do it this year. Or I feel compelled by Christ to do something else. Um, and then somebody else can step up. So it, it kind of gives that, it sort of gives the, the negative expectation as well as the positive expectation. So you can, you can feel more comfortable saying no, and you can feel more comfortable saying yes, I guess is, is the best way I can describe it. No, that's, that's extremely helpful. And, uh, it, it's something that I think I, I can see it when you say it, but I think for most people in my group would, would require a paradigm shift because I've been saturated like with, with examples and I, I've yeah. heard bits and pieces. So it, it makes sense, but 
I understand why it doesn't make sense to people in my yeah. group because I still think that way. Um, well, and I do too. A lot of times is it, it, it's. Um, I mean, any sort of. I mean, everything pretty much in our lives is structured in this sort of like pyramid fashion. Uh, and when when you're looking at something that's a lot more flat, it does take a bit of a, a mind change to like understand how that's going to work. And it is. It's different. It's just it. But it. But once. And it, and it can be very disorienting or very um, upsetting, I guess, like where you're just like, oh, nobody's going to do this. And then you, and then eventually you realize, oh, this is important to me. Like I need to do this. And, and it's like, it, it is, it's, it's just, a, it's, it, it is, it's just a different way of thinking kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, I, I've been going down the, uh, the, the anarchist route as well. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of drawing out conclusions that you've, you've drawn out here on hierarchies, but also on, on violence. I mean, being inherent in the state. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, and that's something that I struggled with as I looked at the Quakers because they are, they do seem to be by and large politically involved today. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that was going to be one of my questions, but you've, you've kind of answered that about how how do you deal with hierarchies in in the government and other sorts of things? And I know your, your answer pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, Okay, I, I think this is the last question I have um, sure. kind of written down, and maybe some more will, will come from it. But one of the one of the themes that comes out to me with the Quakers is over and over again is sacrifice. So whether it's lay being willing to sacrifice, you know, his reputation or or whatever, like being willing to count the cost for for the initiatives that they that they do, the things that they're convicted about. Mm-hmm. But then even even beyond. Oh, and other Quakers being persecuted for not paying taxes or for not joining the army back in the day, mm-hmm. um, or for being friends with Indians, yeah, uh, Native Americans. So there's, yeah, there, there's a cost that comes from persecution, but something that, for I don't want to say that I'd, I'd be able to be persecuted and and stand. I I think I would. I hope I would. But the thing that's almost actually more inspiring and convicting and difficult is the way that that so many Quakers like Benjamin Lay again, um, cause he's one of my few Quaker references. Uh, like he lived in a cave, he yeah, saved yeah. up his money. He didn't buy sugar. And I think, right. so I, I'm against child labor. I bet a lot of the products in my house have, have been touched by child labor. Sure. I'm for the environment, but I waste a lot. We use paper plates or plastic plates sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, just just the willingness to personally sacrifice is inspiring and i almost don't want to look at the quakers because it's it's like my life just feels so so gross so i'd love for you to talk about on on those two levels maybe the the persecution level maybe you you have some things from history you can pull out or even Mm -hmm. modernity but also the personal sacrifice level like what what role does sacrifice play in the quaker community and how does that influence the great things that they they have done and as well as their daily lives. Yeah, I, I think that, hmm. so sacrifice a lot of times is a perspective. Um, so there's, in, especially with conservatives, there is a large group of what are called plain Quakers. Um, and they're often mistaken for Amish or Mennonites. They, they live extremely simple lives. They make their own clothes. They, uh, they have they a lot of times they receive gum or they're eligible to receive government benefits, but they do this because they don't want to basically feed into the war machine. 
um, or, or other, re- there's other reasons as well. They want the simplicity so that they can concentrate on the message from Christ and things like that. So, but uh, I think that if you spoke to a lot of them, they would say, well, yeah, I guess, I guess giving up a lot of these, you know, modern convenience and stuff like that is sacrifice, but it's, it's really, it's a perspective. It's that for them, uh, this is what they want to do. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's a privilege to live that way. So um, I think that's, that's sort of part of it is that um, personal sacrifice is I mean, you can see like my house, I'm speaking in a microphone, I got computers and stuff like that. Like there, there's, uh, if you feel convicted to give up a lot of these things, then you would, um, then you would. Um, and even like John Woolman, for example, like he talks about this in his journal a lot where he gives up a lot of conveniences and luxuries, uh, because, uh, the same thing is he doesn't want to fund, uh, slavery and he doesn't want to fund war. Uh, so he lives a very, very simple life. But what's what I always find very inspir- inspiring about his journal is that he keeps doing these things to give up wealth or conveniences and stuff like that. And he keeps getting blessed with good business decisions. So uh, he every time he gives up some money, he receives more money. So it's like a weird like <laughs> prosperity gospel kind of thing, I guess. But uh, but like he does, it's it's a very strange kind of situation. And you see this a lot in um, in Quakers in history is a lot of them did give up stuff and then became extremely wealthy business people and things like that because they adhered to what they believe were the teachings of God and God rewards uh, living, you know, in his light. And so like I'm the Cadbury cream egg or the Cadbury company, the chocolate company there, that's a Quaker company or they were back a long time ago. Um, And uh, the, the, one of the first patents issued in the United States was for uh, straw hats uh, like a, a machine that made these straw hats. Uh, this was a woman. She, she invented this and she became extremely wealthy from that. She was a Quaker. Um, so it's like these different like things that, um, when you live in the light of Christ, a lot of times you're rewarded and it may not be just financially rewarded. It may just be peace of spirit. Um, and I think that a lot of plain Quakers, that's sort of how they, they express their experience of God is that although it does seem like a, a large personal sacrifice to live in a very, very plain manner, um, it's also, it, it's sort of like the monastic movement, like going off into the desert and living that way. Like that is a privilege as well, to some degree, because although you may not be comfortable physically, spiritually, you are uh, satisfied and full. Um, so like, so I guess that's kind of the, the trade-off. And then as far as like being persecuted throughout history, uh, I'm sure it was not pleasant at all, <laughs> at all in history, but it's fun to read about. Uh, it's very interesting to read about. One of the one of the stories that is always one of my favorites is that uh, when Cromwell took over England, um, there was a law that you had to go to church, and Quakers don't go to church; they go to meeting. And um, so Cromwell was all, or it wasn't Cromwell specifically, but the, the Puritans that were in charge were all angry about this that Quakers kept not going. And so their favorite way to punish them was to strip them naked and like march them around the town right? As like a way to embarrass them. And so the the Quaker response to this was, well, if you really want us to go to church and you really want us naked, we'll just go to church naked. And so they would just show up in church with no clothes on. And like, what do you do about that? Like it's, it's things like that where they, they a lot of times find a very clever way or a um, sort of a joyful way to uh, resist, even if it's not um, not physically pleasant or um, or there is a lot of pain and physical discomfort and stuff like that, but there is spiritual comfort, 
uh, and there is um, there's there's a reward for there is a like a psychological spiritual reward for doing what's right, even if it's not a uh, even if it's not a comfortable physical situation, I guess would, would be the difference. Um, I, I can't really think of it. Another way to describe it is again, the, the, there is sacrifice, but the, the, when you sacrifice the reward for sacrificing spiritually is better. And, and oftentimes you'll be blessed with physical comforts as well. I mean, the Cadbury people were, uh, I'm sure very comfortable <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, same thing with the, the lady, I can't remember her name. She's, she's written essays and stuff. It's pretty interesting, but, um, you know, she made quite a bit of money for the machine that makes straw hats. And, uh, you know, there's just, there's a lot of really interesting things like that, where you can point and say that these people were like John Woolman is a good example. Um, physic, like materially poor, but spiritually wealthy and, and wealthy in friendships and wealthy in, um, his experience. He was, he was, you know, it wasn't super common back then that you were able to just kind of go around to all the colonies and stuff like that. And he was able to meet lots of different people. He was able to interact with the Indians and, um, he was, he was able to free slaves and change the, the material conditions of many, many people, which is its own, it's, it's rewarding in a different way. Whereas, so yes, his physical comfort was, I guess, a sacrifice, but it's made up in another way. I, that's that, I think that's, that's the way I guess I'll answer the question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that just brings in another, um, another thing for me, which is, you know, uh, Cromwell, right. P- the Puritans, um, persecuting the Quakers and, and, uh, you said in Boston, was it where that lady came back and they hung her? Yeah. Because- uh, it was Massachusetts. I don't know if it was specifically Boston, but yeah. Yeah. You know, Puritans, uh, executing, Quakers who like don't don't do anything to anybody, and it um, yeah. you know we, my group has this narrative that oh the the poor Puritans escaping escaping persecution and and really what it what it amounts to a lot of times in my mind at least maybe this is this is too far the other way but it's it's basically well you're escaping the powerlessness that you had because had you had the power you would have been persecuting the other people yeah you're mad well, that you could be persecuting yeah. people. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're very interesting people, especially the American Puritans were kind of like the Puritans that the Puritans didn't like. Um, and so they kicked him out to <laughs> America, well, first to Holland, then to the colonies. But um, yeah, it, it is, it was, a, it's a really interesting time. I mean, even Cromwell, um, there's a lot of interaction between George Fox and Cromwell. Cromwell would visit him in jail a lot of times and he would Lee and uh, one of the quotes that, George Fox used to say, like he'd say, like I implore you to leave your your crown at God's feet, basically give up the power, uh, give stop doing what you're doing, and he would leave the the meeting crying and and you know touched by the touched by George Fox's words, but would ultimately just go back to doing what he was doing. Um, so th- it was a really interesting time, and this is you know George Fox was uh, you can talk about sacrifice, you know George Fox was a fairly wealthy middle-class man um, was convicted by Christ to start a sort of a peaceful revolution in the midst of inter-Christian faith fighting. And then even when they got rid of the Catholics, then none of the Protestants could get along and they were all fighting and killing each other and stuff like that. And um, there was a time actually where there were more Quakers in prison in England than Quakers out of prison in England. Uh, And so like there, it was, there was, 
again, this sort of sacrifice, but like in the Bible, a lot of times they would go to prison and they would convert people, their prisoners, and those prisoners would be convicted to release them. So like they would, so this was like one of those things that like governments have a hard time with is when you have somebody who's really convicted in the faith, um, it's kind of hard to resist that charisma, I guess. Um, like when you can see the spirit pouring out of someone, it's, it's just difficult to not be convinced by that. And so then, so George Fox, he keeps going to prison. He keeps converting people. He keeps causing all these problems for the Puritans. So they send him to Barbados. He starts converting people in Barbados. They send, then he ends up like walking up, I think to South Carolina and then walks all the way to Massachusetts, converting people all along the way. And um, so although, yes, he did have a lot of physical pain and uh, a lot of discomfort materially, he did make a huge impact in the world and he had, he had a peace in Christ. I mean, this is what, this was kind of what the, uh, what Christ, what he heard when he first um, had like a meditative worship or whatever was, he heard the spirit say, none can speak to thy condition except for God. So um, that's kind of how he had this realization that like, you know, we are, we, we don't just believe, like, we don't just say that we believe that God is here. He is here. And he'll, and he'll speak to us. And so I wouldn't say that like the, the physical pain and stuff like that, it doesn't matter, but there's a trade-off and the trade-off is uh, spiritual fulfillment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know that that's another problem that, that I and my group has is you know, we're, we're, we're not Gnostics, but functionally we are where mm -hmm. um, just kind of, I guess, uh, reverse Gnostics where the material really is good uh, mm -hmm. and the spiritual is kind of off to the side and, and secondary. So, yeah. well, this is, this is something yeah. that the Puritans really influenced Protestantism about was that, uh, and I think this is kind of where a lot of prosperity gospel and stuff like that comes from is that the Puritans believed that if you were very wealthy, um, that was God blessing you. Uh, and so like these people that were, that were rich were seen as being very holy people, uh, because they were materially blessed. And, I don't think that that's ex exactly true. I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a crime to be rich and I don't think it's a crime necessarily to be poor. Um, but you, but the way that you use your material position in the world, um, it should be, uh, a, a force for good. So if you're a very wealthy person and you're using your position in the world. So, so Cadbury is another good example. The reason that Cadbury became as successful as it is, it used to be that people would like grind up bricks and they would mix the brick dust with the chocolate. And, um, and so what I, I may be mixing up two stories here, but that, that's one of the things that they did. But so what Cadbury, one of his things was he said, this was a violation of the, uh, integrity, um, testimony because you're lying, you're not actually giving people chocolate and it's not good for them to eat brick dust. Um, and then also the, so he made pure chocolate. And then the other thing was that um, poor children couldn't afford most chocolate. It was, it was a, a middle-class treat uh, or a, a middle-class and wealthy person's treat. And so he felt that this was something that should be brought to everybody. And so he invented a way to basically get the mix the chocolate with milk and make milk chocolate so that it would be cheaper, but it also still be a, a kind of a pure thing, not mixed with brick dust so that poor kids could still either have a, a mixed chocolate drink, or they could have small chocolates and still experience this, this, uh, physical joy from candy. 
and uh, and this made him extremely wealthy but it was a it was a a risk a, bi- a business risk you know he had a business and it, he had a family to take care of and this is not what other people were doing this is going against the grain of the chocolate industry in England at the time and he was ultimately rewarded i mean we still eat cadbury today that's a very different company today but um he was rewarded by being an extremely successful chocolatier or whatever in England. So things, things, uh, if you are acting in the right, they may not, it may not always be very clear and apparent immediately that you're being rewarded for this, but doing what's right is, I wouldn't, I don't want to say it's its own reward because that sort of diminishes people's like physical pain and, and suffering and stuff like that. But um, doing what's right and, and doing what you're convicted to do is, noble, honorable. It's, 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 it's a reward. It's a trade-off. It's that you are doing what's right. And this will give you peace, peace of conscience, peace of spirit. Um, even if it's costly financially or costly physically, uh, the trade-off is worth it. It's, um, it's a, it's a, it's the right, it's the the only way I could describe it. It's the right thing to do. You should, you should be doing what's right and just. Yeah. And I think that gets into, I think a lot of times, we and me, I focus on um, trying to to maybe change my behavior or to just focus on, okay, well, just endure the sacrifice, just make it a sacrifice. Whereas uh, a lot of what I'm reading uh, in regard to like virtue ethics is something that I've, I've come to realize is, is very powerful and, and more of the idea that you your desires change. So you're talking about like, well, the, the plain uh, Quakers they don't really desire those things. Yeah. And so in a sense, it's, it's not so much a sacrifice. And so the question isn't, how do I, how do I make myself sacrifice? It's how do I make myself desire and desires are fostered through, um, you know, through disciplines and practices. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that's probably why I struggle so much because disciplines take discipline and mm-hmm. um, it, that, that takes a lot of, a lot of effort. And as a good American, I like the get rich quick schemes and the, sure. the yeah. weight loss pills and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it, it's it's hard. I mean, like a, a discipline is a discipline. It's it's not always easy, but um, but the rewards are great. I mean, and, and we read this a lot in the Bible and stuff like that. That like, uh, even when people a lot of times were told to like give up wealth and stuff like that in the Bible, they went a lot, often they would go away full in the spirit. So. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, I, I would say maybe an equilibrium. It's like, it's, you, you are trading off one thing, but sometimes those things that you think are what you want and what you desire are actually not making you happy and they're not benefiting your community at large. And it does take a, it does take a, a shift in, um, in perspective. Uh, and, and it's hard. Like one of the things that I always struggle with, with like, um, nonviolence is I'm married like, what would I do if somebody, you know, I, this is our things I think about, like, what would I do if somebody broke in uh, and was threatening our, us with violence? It's like, so like, there's like, there's things like that where like when you're single, when you're a single young man with no really responsibilities or anything like that, it's very easy to go like, well, you know, just, you know, I'll jump out the window or, uh, you know, I'll try to talk him out of it or whatever, or just, you know, whatever. But like, when you add on the responsibility of like a spouse or, you know, the dogs or whatever, I don't have any kids yet, but eventually adding on that responsibility of children, stuff like that. Like those are, those are things that are kind of are complicated. They're 
uh, hard to think about. They're hard to deal with, but uh, you know, that's, it's just, it's part of the, it's part of the path. It's part of, it's part of the discipline. It's part of uh, your experience of Christ on this earth. So I don't know. That's, that's all I, (laughs) that's all, that's all I can, I can say. I don't know if it's, I don't know if that's clear or poignant. Well, the older I get, I mean, the less clear things become, the more I learn, but the less clear things become. So I, yeah, wasn't (laughs) expecting perfect clarity, just, uh, yeah, more, more to chew on. Yeah. I, I think those are, those are all the questions and more that, uh, that I had. I don't know if there's any, anything you can think of, um, that you'd, you'd like to add. Um, no, I can't. I mean, I'd, I'd love to have another conversation if you think of anything else, but, uh, that's all I had in my notes. So. All right. Well, do you want to, do you want to plug your stuff and, um, yeah. Sure. I mean, uh, so I host a podcast called, uh, Tasting Anarchy. Uh, you can go to tastinganarchy.com and it's, it's mostly about wine and the government involvement in the alcohol industry. Um, we do talk about other stuff too. My co-host Mason is, uh, interesting guy. Um, We've, we've been in the, the Liberty community for a long time together for 12 or 13 years. Uh, so he was actually my friend before I became a convinced friend and is still my friend. Um, and he was when I first met him a Buddhist and now he doesn't really care about that at all. So, uh, so kind of an interesting, interesting journey with him. And he's a very interesting guy. And we do talk about that kind of stuff once in a while, but mostly it's, it's about the alcohol industry and how uh, the government manipulates prices and stuff like that in that realm uh, or changes people's decisions and things like that. Um, I also do a show called uh, California in Exile, which I guess I would be the California in Exile. I live in Texas, but I'm a Californian. And um, that show is mostly about intentional communities. So that's kind of one of my focuses is uh, trying to get uh, separating from the sort of the whole uh, war machine and uh, violence of the state and stuff like that, and move into intentional communities. There, there's a there's a really good uh, Quaker community in North Carolina that has done that called Silo. So we talk about that once in a while. Um, it's pretty interesting. Um, also, I do a Liberty event here in Central Texas every year called Childerberg. Uh, so you can go to childerberg.com and find out more information about that. If you want to just come out and hang out with us and enjoy other nonviolent Liberty lovers, then uh, Hit us up and we'll uh, give you more details. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.